0: All right, if you've got your Bibles, I want to turn to the book of Colossians tonight. I'm going to turn to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to read from verse 16 down to chapter 4, verse 1. So Colossians chapter 3, uh, it says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So uh, I want to sort of kick off uh, there uh, with some thoughts there tonight, and uh, I've called tonight uh, Conquering Babylon, and I'll explain uh, why there shortly, Um, but just if I can maybe begin, and I sort of uh, did this last week uh, down in the Byron campus, and I just wanted to uh, just do this here at Billy tonight, to just mention what we're about, what we're doing over this next season. And uh, the church is a community of faith and worship, and, uh, but yet at the same time the church needs to be vitally connected to the world. And so there's no divide between what uh, people call sacred and secular. Sacred, we go to church on Sunday, somehow that can be separated from Monday to Friday, or as Don and Denise's links group is doing at the moment, thank God it's Monday, and as they're going through Paul Bartlett's uh, book uh, that he wrote. Now, uh, with this here, and I'll see if we can, uh, we've got a little bit of action there. Uh, can maybe, uh, I'm not sure if Jit's there, if you can maybe, I, I plugged that into the thing because there wasn't enough fittings, Jit, but uh, maybe if you could just check on that for me. Theoretically, it should be communicating. Unless they pulled it out. They might have pulled it out. Okay, there we go. Fantastic. Thank you, Jit. Okay, um, we've got this season 24-7. And uh, Laurie was speaking on that this morning. Uh, But Jesus said these words in John uh, 14 and 15. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Jesus said, "Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one." And there's an incredible paradox here is simply Jesus is saying, We are not to be of the world, yet at the same time, we're to be of the world." And what he's uh, basically saying is, we must be distinct from the world that we live in as a worshipping community and uh, as a place that has a premium. On that, on worship, on on uh, you know connecting and fellowship, waiting on God, and with that, um, that should be really important in our lives. Some people try and want to be connected to the community, but they've got no connection with the worshiping community, and I just believe it bluntens people's spiritual edge. The moment they go down that way, uh, the other side of the thing is some people uh, are so separated from the world they've got no connection to it. And in that separation, uh, they've become irrelevant and uh, have no uh, living relationship. And Laurie was speaking very much on that this morning. Now, with this, there's two times in history in the Old Testament where the church actually were under other powers. And in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus uh, talks of the first time. And basically, that book is about the drawing out of a deliverer and a little read ark, and then that deliverer will draw out a worshipping company before an ark of the covenant. And so we've called that Ark to Ark, and it's the journey of how uh, not to be of the world. That's what that journey is about, and that's what we're doing in our mornings. The second major moment in Israel's history where they lived under a foreign alien power was Babylon. And there's one particular book, Uh, there's actually two, uh, Ezekiel also, but one primary book that deals with that. And that is the book of Daniel. And so that book is about how God sowed his worshipping community back into a hostile environment, a hostile world. And with that, uh, into that Babylonian marketplace, God put his people, so they had to rub shoulder to shoulder, with people connect with them and we've called this nine to five and uh or profits in the marketplace and it's just a story of how uh although uh we not of the world yet we are of the world and daniel is really that story of being yet of the world vitally connected to the world that we live within and so in the mornings, we're dealing with arc to arc, how to not be of this world. In the evenings here at Billy Nudgell, we're dealing 9 to 5, how 9 to 5, yet we are of the world, vitally connected to the, to the world. So I hope you get where we're coming from. Now, uh, I'm not going to turn to Daniel tonight. I've turned actually to Colossians. I want to really kick off in the New Testament tonight. And I want to deal, uh, if I can, with some issues that regularly come up and I don't think are really understood uh, by uh, uh, the church. Certainly, the world does not understand it. And, but Daniel uh, and his friends were young guys living in that alien power of Babylon. And so I want to begin to talk about Babylon, if I can. Uh, is First Peter uh, is another New Testament letter. And Peter ended that letter uh, by this statement, she... Who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, send greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, nearly every theologian looks at that and sees that what Peter did is he took what was known as a real historical city in the Old Testament and he made it cryptic or allegorical to symbolize Rome, where he was when he wrote that letter. And so he wrote that letter in around 63 AD, and that was the ruling power. They were under real pressure. The key word of First Peter is suffering. And, and he mentions this statement, She, which is speaking of the believing worshipping community, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you, you worshipping community in your area of the world, greetings. And so this term Babylon, uh, although it referred to a real historical city, also referred to this aragorical, symbolic uh, system of mankind uh, separated from God. Uh, And so it became very important. And so Babylon is a word that means gate of the gods. That's what it actually means. Uh, But yet, the word in Hebrew, in a Hebrew play on words, also means confusion. So the gate of God or the gate of the gods, became confusion. And that comes right from the very beginning when this city is first mentioned, which we'll turn to just in a second. Now, when I refer to Babylon, and I'm going to be doing that a lot in this series, I'm referring to this allegorical term for a system in mankind in rebellion to God. We live in Babylon still to this world today. It's because it's a system. In fact, it will run from the beginning of the Bible to the end of your Bible, uh, this system. And this system is, is, uh, uh, if I can say, is mankind doing their thing but with no connection uh, in relationship to the worshipping community or to God. And so that's what we're going to be referring. Now, in your Bible, the first place this is ever mentioned, it begins right in the beginning of your Bible. And so it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is a name uh, that means rebellion. He was the 13th son after Adam. And uh, I think some people will know that 13 is a number uh, that's got sort of some stigma about it. It's, that's because in Scripture, this number actually is, is actually uh, referred to this way. And it's a number that's always referred to as rebellion. And so Nimrod was this man, his name literally means he who has rebelled. And so what happened, this man, it says, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Not in hunting animals, some thought it was that. But most people think he was hunting men and hunting mankind. And therefore it says like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was the gate of God, uh, Babel, or this word that can mean confusion. And so uh, with this uh, is what happens. He founded this kingdom that becomes Babylon. Now, uh, with this, um, if I can maybe uh, sort of uh, take this just a step further, you read of that kingdom in Genesis 11. And I want to just go there and sort of put this in place so you'll catch this. Uh, Genesis 11:4 it says... Uh, Those at Babylon or Babel said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let's defy God and let's build a tower uh, to literally uh, be connected to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. And that was the foundation of the city of Babylon. Mankind doing his thing. Let us do this great achievement yet with in this defiance and rebellion to God. And so in Genesis eleven five 5 and 7, it says, and the Lord came down. You notice the, the play on words there. Man is trying to build up, and the Lord came down, stooped down to see this futile attempt that man was doing. And it says, with the children of man are built. Come, let us. Can you see the play on words? Man is going, let us, let us. And here the Lord says, come, let us. We'll stoop down. Come down and we will confuse their language. And this is this word, uh, which is this word that means confusion. We'll confuse their language. And what happens? Uh, confound it. And what happens is mankind, who is in rebellion, trying to centralize humanity, is now mankind will be forced to spread out over all the earth. Now, uh, out of that kingdom uh, is Babel or Babylon. There was a man, and that man came to faith in God, and his name was Abraham. I'm sure you've heard of him. And the Lord spoke to that man out of that kingdom in defiance against God and the Lord said to him in Genesis 12, 1, And the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your, what? Your country. In other words, go out of Babylon. He lived in Ur-Chaldea, ancient Babel, ancient Babylon. And what happens is God says you're to leave that, you leave your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And Abraham did that, and he became known as the father of faith. And so Abraham moves out of that place, which was Babylon. Now, from that moment in your Bible, uh, Babylon or Babel will be juxtaposed or put over against God's people or God's worshipping community, which would actually be eventually centralized in Jerusalem. And so what happens, you have two kingdoms that begin in the beginning of your Bible and actually stretch all the way through to the end of your Bible and conclude in this struggle right through the Scripture. And the first of those is Babylon. And Babylon is always presented as a harlot, a seductress. And uh, in Genesis ten eleven is where we first read of this system. Or this kingdom, which was a literal kingdom, but yet became an allegorical picture of mankind, literally in rebellion to God. And in Ezekiel and the book of Daniel, this absolutely crystallized into uh, this struggle that occurred, uh, where God's people were put back in under this this great system. And then in Revelation seven and eight, there comes to a climax. And at the end of the book is Babylon will fall. And it says will come down And in the book of Revelation. So in this series, we've got to touch some of the book of Revelation. Now, over and against that is this worshiping community. Uh, that The Scripture actually uses this term Jerusalem. And she is known as the bride. She begins in Genesis 14 when Abraham first met God's high priest, called Melchizedek, uh, if you read your Old Testament. And then, of course, David would make that his capital in 2 Samuel 5. And right at the end of your Bible, it ends with this Jerusalem God's worshipping company. But yet, all the way through the Bible, there is this struggle between this system called Babylon and God's worshipping community. And it runs right through the Scripture now, there's one of the prophecies directed towards this kingdom called Babylon. There's a number of oracles, what's known as addresses, towards this system. And one of those is in the book of Isaiah. And I want to read it here just for a moment tonight. And this occurs in Isaiah 13:14, uh, but I'll read here from chapter 14. And it says uh, here, Isaiah says, You will take up this taunt against the king of what power? Babylon. And so, Isaiah was addressing a real king in Babylon at the time. But although it was a literal historical centre, it actually stood for this symbolic uh, power that's struggling with with the ways of God. And so, it takes up this taunt, and then that taunt crystallises into these words. And it goes, "How you have fallen from heaven, O day star!" Now, if you've got an old King James Bible. It has the Latin word, it's Latin, and the Latin word is the word Lucifer, and Lucifer is the word which means day star in Latin. Some people think, oh, you know, uh, people pull this out of the Bible, as a Latin word. In actual fact, it means, oh, day star. And so what happened? All the church fathers saw this prophecy, although it was directed towards this system, this historical city, yet there's a symbolic power that sits behind this system. And this power was the day star, our Son of the dawn. And it says, how you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And all the church fathers saw this as literally addressing the satanic power that stood behind the system and through every king that opposed God's people. And so it says there, you laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. And then it goes above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I'll sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I think you can hear the arrogance. I think you can hear the pride that's... Intrinsically written into that uh, oracle or prophecy, and and behind the system is this dreadful pride, and and people address this actually to Satan and the satanic power, but in front of that was this system, and so this power actually lay these five eye wheels, this arrogance, stood behind the authority of this system, Babylon, and from the 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 first architect of the city called Nimrod, the rebellion, uh, through to a man called Nebuchadnezzar that we'll, we'll get to talk about in this series, who dominated the reprised Babylon under the days of Ezekiel and, the, and Daniel. And finally, right down to the end of the age, to a figure that the Bible addresses as Antichrist. And so this power sits, this arrogance, sits behind this system as it struggles with God's worshipping community, trying to control. Now, this system has a way it works. And in Scripture, it, it actually is said that this system uh, seeks to control the minds of all the people that come under its influence, under its covering. And it seeks to control the identities of those who live within this system. And it seeks to control their beliefs their values, their convictions, and ultimately seeks to control their destinies. Now, this system, this Babylon, uh, uh, the book of Revelation pictures as a harlot riding on a great beast. And it's a, a picture that we'll come back to a number of times uh, within this series. And so the, the, the church fathers always saw this system as working primarily two ways. The first way is by intoxication. And when you actually uh, uh, look at this, you'll see this is powerfully evident, powerfully evident right through Scripture, right from when Noah first got drunk in a vineyard, right through to Belshazzar, who will try and drink from the vessels of the house of God, uh, mocking uh, the God of the Bible as he's intoxicated, uh, and right through to the end of the age, intoxication. Uh, another prophecy, Jeremiah speaks of this, and I'll just read it here, Jeremiah 51, seven. It says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands, making the, all the earth drunken. And then it goes, the nations drank her wine, therefore the nations went mad. That's God's perspective. Yet the nations think they're controlling everything and just doing it just as they think is right. In actual fact, it says the nations went mad through this intoxication because as it controlled the minds and the identities of the people it sought to control. It literally controlled their destinies and and led them into tragic ends. And the Bible also says of this system, it's a great harlot and there's a seduction that goes with this system. And so the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 7, 21, 22, speaks of a harlot. And and the fathers related this to the system. And it says here in Proverbs 7, 21, With much seductive speech, she persuades those who are naive. And she persuades them to come under her thinking, under her manipulation, under her seduction, intoxicated with the seduction of her perfume. And, and, and it says there, with her smooth talk, she compels this naive one. And then finally at once, she, all of a sudden he gives way and he follows her and comes under a spell. And she will lead him to the house of death. That's what it says. So we have this system, this, this whole thing of Babylon that's just seeking to control humanity. And the, the picture of this is a mystery. And so Revelation will actually uh, speak of this. And in Revelation, it'll uh, actually uh, give a quick summary. And I'll just summarize this so you all get the picture and then you'll understand what I'm going to be saying tonight. Is that okay? So in uh, the book of Revelation, as it deals with this system, uh, it says in Revelation seven seventeen five, it calls this system the mother of harlots. She's a mother of seductiveness of others other systems that come forth to control the ways of humanity. Is Daniel uh, here, or it's not Daniel, but Revelation, John in Revelation 17:5 calls this system the fount of all the earth's abominations. It is in actual fact right at the heart of the abominations of this earth is this system. So behind what you know as the Holocaust, the Third Reich, it was rooted in this system. Is because that was brought abomination into the earth, but it had its connections in this system, and it says there this system became the international trading control power of all the earth, and so Revelation fourteen eight, Revelation seventeen one speaks of this. It speaks there in Revelation eighteen eleven to seventeen that those under this system became morally weakened by the wealth and the luxury of this incredible power and this system that was controlling humanity. It says in Revelation 17.6 and 19.2 that this system ultimately came to destroy the worshipping community of believers, to actually uh, persecute and try and harm God's people, And, and it speaks of that. And then Revelation 18.2 and verse 9 and 10 and verse 21 says that suddenly Babylon would fall. Historically, the Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and the book of Daniel will fall in one night. Suddenly, no one could ever imagine that power. And we'll get to this power. And when you see this power, you go, it is impossible that that ever fell. In fact, Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the world. Did you know that? You ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? You know, they said at the walls of the gates of Babylon, or literally the walls of the city that ran nearly 30 or 40 miles around the city, is they could ride six chariots abreast on top of that wall. The unconquerable city. And in one night it fell, and it falls in the book of Daniel. And we'll get to that. But it says, just as that literal city will fall so will this system that controls all the earth in one night will fall. In the same way, it'll all come down. And then it says in Revelation 17:7, 7, it says this, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? Why do you marvel? He's saying to John in this instance, I will tell you the, what's the word? The mystery. The word mystery in Scripture is something that is hidden to the average person, but is revealed in God. And it says there, this mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries this particular harlot or this woman. Now, with this here, we now come to Colossians. And uh, the reason I read this tonight is because you are New Testament believers. And before we even get to the book of Daniel, we need to see where we sit, we need to understand who we are in the world. Now, uh, I love this verse in, in Colossians 3:16. Uh, it goes, "Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching one another, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sounds like Sunday to me. It's been spiritual, spiritually connected to God, the sacred. And, and Colossians just says there, as it speaks this, that is probably the best one-line definition of God's worshiping community in a New Testament sense. And, you know, with this, if you read the parallel, and Ephesians was written exactly the same time by Paul uh, as Colossians. And it says in Ephesians, as it writes the parallel of this, in Ephesians 5.18, it substitutes there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it substitutes, be filled with the Spirit. Do you realize as far as Paul's concerned, to be filled with the Spirit and for the Word of God to richly dwell in, in you is a synonym. Do you realize that? This is how Paul wrote it. And in and one, one side, he just writes, be filled with the Spirit. And, and there in Colossians, he says, let the Word of Christ. Because if you get filled with the Spirit, you will love the Word of God. You, you can't divorce the two. They go hand in hand. And so with this there is. is uh, Paul actually says in this way, and all our New Testament letters, all of them, uh, except with very few exceptions, the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, probably are two of the exceptions in your New Testament, they all work in a pattern. It's because they're letters. And so uh, they all deal, firstly, usually with a letter, half the letter, Deals with where your life is lived spiritually in Christ. Where you are positioned in Christ in heavenly places, if I was doing Ephesians, for example. Now in Colossians, this goes from Colossians one, chapter verse one, right through to chapter three, verse seventeen. Have you noticed where I've come in on the reading? Because you need to see. And then always in the New Testament letters, there's a second half of the letter. It's how your lives are lived practically. Can, Can you see the picture? What is sacred, what is secular. Because in Scripture, there's no separation between the two. And nearly all the letters will then go, all right, this is how you live your life out practically in the real world. And so uh, Colossians three eighteen to four eighteen deals with our lives as it's lived out practically as a believer in the world that we live within. The sacred and the secular, but in actual fact, they're just two sides of the one coin. Everyone follow what I say there. Now, I want you to notice what Colossians 3, 17, which finishes that first half of the letter uh, uh, in that first section. And Paul says, whatever, repeat that, whatever you do, whatever you do, uh, do what? Everything. Everything. Monday to Friday and Saturday and Sunday, 24-7. Everything you do, whatever you do. You got the picture? He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, give thanks to God the Father through Him. Because God's planted you in a real world 24-7 to live this faith out that we live in spiritually 24-7. Now, that then sets up the next part of the reading. And this next part of the reading is deals with the church. Now, just before I look at this and I just look at the three points and you read over this and you do not realize how radical it is. In fact, you're about to read the most radical part of the New Testament. But you just read it all your lives, ho-hum, you don't even realize it. You just go, oh, well, now it's going to talk about wives and husbands, children and masters and slaves. And you read over that and go, well, you know, I get a few points out. But in actual fact, in the New Testament readers, it was the most radical part of the whole letter. And I want to get you to see why. But just before we do, is when you read the historical books of the Roman Empire, and you want to see why Christianity was the threat it was to them. And it was an incredible threat to the first century Roman Empire. And they were dreadfully threatened by this new worshipping community that arrived in the first century. Uh, They didn't really know how to define them. Uh, And they were threatened. And we know how they were threatened because we've got Romans who wrote about them. Is, is you've got Romans, uh, uh, Pliny, and, and, and you've got uh, 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 Suetonius, and, and you've got uh, particular Roman observers like Tacitus. Uh, they observed the community and this tremendous threat that Christianity made to the Roman Empire. Uh, or, can I say this? To Babylon. Because that's how Peter defined that system. Now, with this here, this is what they criticized the early church for. They accused the early Christian believers of being atheists. That's an interesting one, isn't it? I don't think Richard Dawkins quite is aware of that. It's because it was the Christians who were accused of atheism because they worshipped no visible idol. And the Romans had never seen anything of that nature up until they met Christianity. And they were extremely threatened because there was no geographical idol or center of this new community of believers. So they didn't know how to target it. They didn't know how to, 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 to go, do we legitimize it or do we make it illegal? It's, it's, they're just atheists. They worship no visible God. And so they called them atheists. And then they came and they actually said, these people are in rebellion. And they saw this new worshiping community as extremely rebellious to the Roman Empire is because the Christian community would not declare Caesar is Lord. And they would not walk and put the the pinch of incense in the fire the one day of the year when Caesar had descended to his throne and declare Caesar is Lord over all. It's because the Christians stood and said there is only one Lord over all and it's Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And it was a major, major threat to the Roman system. They called the Christians a Jewish sect. How do we define them? They began that way. And so you realize Christians suffered anti-Semitism. They kicked all the, all the Jews out of Rome. And they kicked all the Christians out too because they wore the butt end of anti-Semitism as well. is the Romans accused them of immorality, Because they'd heard through the grapevine rumor that these early believers met on a a Sunday at 4 a.m. or at 10 p.m. at night. And they heard they had a particular feast that they held called an agape feast or a love feast to Jesus Christ. And they went, that sounds like an immoral thing to us. They'd never seen it, but this is what they accused them of. And then they accused them of upsetting the commerce of the land. It became a major threat because all over the Roman Empire they were selling shrines and idols. And, and suddenly people were turning against the idols and turning against uh, the paganism way of making money. Acts 19, 21 to 24, it says they started to put the idol makers out of business. Now that's a real problem when you put a taxpaying community out of business. And so they got extremely threatened. And the Romans said, you're upsettling our empire. is because you are saying that slaves are the same equal right as any person if they come to Jesus Christ. And this was a threat to the Roman system because the whole empire was positioned upon slavery. And I'll show you this just in a moment is they said that Christianity breaks up families. is because they heard Jesus said that if you don't love me more than your mother and father, then you've got no part with me. And, and Jesus actually said sometimes your own family is going to be hostile towards you. Not that the believers were to be hostile to uh, the Christian believers to their family, but it was those outside who would see this as a major threat, just as it is in the Muslim world and um, today. And so they saw it as breaking up families. And then the final accusation the Romans made was they accused them of hatred of mankind. And 1 John 2.15 says to a Christian, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And they heard this. And they said, you don't love our world, you hate mankind. And they accused them of mankind. Now, there was a, a Roman... Uh, who wrote there at this time in the first century called Tacitus, listen to this statement of what he said of the early church. A class hated for their abominations, a deadly superstition, evil, hideous, shameful. And then he accused them of hatred of the human race. Wow. You're bad people. Uh, You know, one of the Romans who observed the worshipping community there in AD 112 was a man called Pliny. And, and he said this, they meet at dawn and sing a hymn to Christ as God. We better destroy them because they're a major threat. <laughs> you know, now this leads us to where the real issue came. is because Christians refused to be a worshipping company at 4 a.m. on Sunday morning and at 10 p.m. midnight is they saw their lives as operating 24-7. And they knew where their lives intersected with that pagan world of Babylon. They saw where it connected, and it connected primarily in these areas, in their relationships, marriage. And Paul will talk about this in Colossians 3.18, in the family. They saw this because we all share this with that system, the world. And Paul talks about this in Colossians 3.19 and 21. And he saw it in the marketplace of Rome or this Babylonian system. Colossians 3, 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. And these words are so radical because no one ever thought anyone would challenge Rome. No one would challenge the system. No one would challenge at all Babylon. And yet Paul addresses this straight. How Christians live 24 7 or 9 to 5. And so, with this here, Paul actually will say in Colossians 4 3, if we kept reading in context right after this passage, he goes, Pray for us also that God may open a door for the word to declare the what? To declare the. It so says, two mysteries. There's the mystery of Babylon, and there's the mystery of Jesus Christ. Something that's hidden from the world that God is going to reveal and that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it will declare the mystery of Christ. And the way our lives intersect with this world that we live within, as as we live that lives out 24-7, we take the Lordship of Jesus Christ right into our world that we live. Now, with this here, the first area is marriage, is relationships. Let me read this again. And Paul just says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Ho-hum. Well, that's just, uh, I've heard that before. Wives, submit. What, what are you saying, Paul? Now, you've got to understand the world that this was written into. You know, um, as Christianity is going to uh, literally change this Roman Empire in 300 years, even the emperor is going to own Christ in 312, and, and what has happened is a lot of the empire are all going to become Christian, and it conquered the empire without sword. It conquered it without polemics, without public preaching, uh, from, because they weren't allowed. And, and what will happen is it, it, it rubber hits the road here. And so with this here, Paul talks about the whole thing with relationships. Now, one of the greatest mistakes church history ever did was when the, after the first 300 years in the 4th century... There was a, a thing that came into this world called monasticism, where people said we will withdraw from the world to become holy. Greatest mistake the church ever made. But the first 300 years, they never made that mistake. And in that first 300 years is they were vitally connected, and they were connected here. So let me talk a little bit about marriage in the first century so you get the picture. Because some people accuse Christianity, you, 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 you're misogynist. You're telling women you've got to submit and, and, and be in their place. Uh, you ever heard that? You know, us Christians are the blame for holding women and oppression. Uh, Is that what Paul really was saying? Is that really what he was saying? You know, in the Greek world of the first century, the Greeks, actually, women had one place in society. They weren't to be seen and they weren't to be heard. So much so that in the Greek world, if you study this time of history, if you had a wife, she was there for the legitimacy of your children. But she didn't cohabit with you. In fact, you didn't even eat with her. She was only there for the legitimacy of your children. But you had what are known as concubines, and they were your friends during the day. So you hung out with them, not with your legitimate wife. And then, you know, if you wanted a little hanky-panky on the side, you had courtesans. And so they separated all their world and life this way. And so the Greek empire was a very immoral empire and if you're girl, if you lived in that system, you're a part of the system that said you had to bow to this system and how this system works. And it was hostile against girls. Now, if we come to the Roman world, and this letter was written to those in the Roman world, women had no rights at all in the Roman world. In fact, it was the most patriarchal system probably in the history of the world is a man had the power of life and death. Women had no rights; they only had duties. And 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 what happens is divorce. There was not one known divorce in the Roman Empire uh, for the first five hundred years. Did you know that? And in two thirty four BC, the first Roman divorce was recorded in the in the Roman Empire. By the first century, is one of the with historians who observed the Roman Empire says people are married to be divorced. Uh, one woman recorded in the first century had eight husbands in five years. One woman had 23 husbands in a lifetime. One man had 21 wives in his lifetime. Caesar Augustus, historically, the Caesar where Jesus was born, is Caesar Augustus demanded one husband to divorce his wife who was pregnant because he wanted her. And he got it because women had no rights at all. She didn't even have a stay in that Roman Empire. And in that Roman Empire... Women had no rights at all. That was the system because it was Babylon, okay? And Babylon does not regard the rights or the values of anyone. It only regards the system. Now, in that world, there was the Jews. Now, they're a little better, the Jewish world. Uh, women had no legal rights, but you still had to treat them okay. Is that okay? And, and, and we got the prayers of the first century of the Jewish Rabbis, you, I'll read you one. I thank God I'm not a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. Now That's a little better. But can I just say it's pretty dark. Now, into that rotten system, that shocking system of Babylon, came the gospel of Jesus Christ. And don't you tell me it was Christianity that kept women barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Babylon did. The Christianity came, and it says this, in that fallen system, that system of Babylon, you can't save Babylon. The only thing is you can be salt and light to that rotten, fallen system. And Paul says, wives, be subject to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Okay? In that rotten system that those women lived in, as you get born again in the gospel you love people at the coalface even though the system is wrong. You hearing what I'm saying? And so the Lord uh, there, Jesus Christ, by love and submission would change heart to heart, life to life. And, And what happens? It didn't come and preach against the system because it was no good salvaging the system. The system is corrupt. The system is wrong. Now, Galatians... It tells us very clearly. You know, Paul says, Wives submit to your husbands. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. Listen to how radical this is. Uh, in, in the New Testament, worshiping community, Paul says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male, or what? It's because in one statement, Paul says you're all equal in Christ. Now that that was a threat to Babylon. That was a major threat because if that gets out, it's going to mess up the system. And so there, you know, is, is the gospel comes to remove the curse. And under the curse for women, it says to women, your desire shall be your husband and he shall what? He shall. And Paul says under that rotten system of the curse. Wives, you just love and you submit and serve under that rotten system because you can even change your guy. And Peter will take that up in three, one, and he'll just go there, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may, may be one with the word by the conduct of their wives. Or, or as, I love how Francis Assisi put this, at all times preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> I don't like that. Uh, now, Paul doesn't leave it there. Because then you live in this system. You live in a rotten system of Babylon. But husbands, you better love your wives and you don't be harsh with them, Paul says. Uh, In the parallel, in Ephesians, it says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, Hello? Uh, I never ever found a woman who's... Struggled with submission to a man who loves her so much, he would lay down his life to serve her. In fact, most of the girls go, yeah, I think I like a boy like that. (laughs) I can live with a man like that Uh, who loves me so much, he would die for me. Jesus never yelled out of heaven, submit, church. I've had men drag women in my office and say, tell my wife to submit. And I go, you fool." (laughs) you missed it man how could you miss it so badly you're doing this right and you're a Christian believer and you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church (laughs) she's going to walk in and she goes I love this boy and I'm just going to flow into the dance of life with him but under the rotten system of Babylon you serve in love now with this here love is agape love it's the love of God and, and it's the love of God in this situation. And, you know, submission is just sub under the same mission. And if you've got a man who loves you, that Christ loved the church, never yells at her to submit but lays down his life for her, she just flows into the dance of the life, and she just submits under the same mission of life. You got me? Now, now with this here, Paul moves on. And he goes, no, that's not enough. You live in Babylon. You live under this system and the system is corrupt. And so he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. <laughs> we we quote that to our kids. You don't realise how radical that is. It's because under this first century Paul adds, fathers do not provoke your children lest they be discouraged. Now, he does the exact same thing he does with the issue of women. And can I, just as I I end on that issue of women, I've got to read this quote. Is that all right? Can you bear with me? We're we're doing okay. Well, I thought we're doing okay. We're doing okay? You're with me? Nathan Wood wrote a book called Trinity in the Universe. It's a 19th century book. So as I read this quote, please hear it and hear it in the context. But let me read it to you. This was Christianity's method with womanhood. Woman was a slave or a plaything without a soul as she's in India and Africa today. That was written in the 19th century, so just bear that in mind. Okay? Christianity quietly made her the equal in Christ as a child of the Father, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, the full equal of man. And whenever Christianity went with this divine method, womanhood has come into its own. It's because Christianity conquers Babylon. And it conquers it by the love of God one heart at a time. Not to salvage a corrupt system, but to salvage lives out of that corrupt system. You hearing what I'm saying? So let, let, me, let me come now to, to children. In that Roman world, and I'll, I'll do this quick now, there was a Roman law called patria patestas. And that means that the father had absolute rights over all children's lives. You know it was legal for a Roman father to kill his children if he so chose. Did you know that? In fact, children were possessions in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, they had no rights and children had no coming of age at all. Did you know that? So under that system of Babylon, the father had absolute power. He could make his children slaves. He could work them in chains. He could execute them. And the Romans had a thing called exposure of girls. And if they didn't want a girl as a liability, they went out and starved them on a mountain or froze them to death at night because girls were nothing to Rome. And so this was a part of the Roman system. And into that system comes Christianity. And in that fallen Babylon, Paul says, children, When you come of faith, obey your parents in everything. Love them. Serve them. Even in this corrupt system, And even if you've got a father who's not a believer as Timothy had in the New Testament, love them. Love them and serve them. And under that corrupt system is you can conquer Babylon. And so Paul then goes, hang on though, it's not enough. He goes, you fathers, if you're a Christian, Uh, Oh, sorry, that one there is the parallel in Ephesians. But let me just come. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become what? Discouraged. If you're a Christian believer and you've got children, they're not possessions. They're little children in the image of God who've got tremendous value and potential and, and absolute possibilities in their life and you're only a steward for a very short time of their lives. And so... He addresses this. Yes, listen to these words of Martin Luther. I love this. Who had a very harsh father. Martin Luther, the reformer, not Martin Luther King. Said, spare the rod, spoil the child. It is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple when he does well. In other words, if you're a father, is you get behind your kids and you encourage them, it's because you're a steward for a very short period of time and you love them. And so into this rotten, fallen system, this world, Paul says you love people and you serve this rotten system of Babylon and you try and as do that, just change heart to heart, life to life. So this comes to the final one. And and I'll just deal with this just for a moment because this is super important because it came up recently in our nation. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, let me just say something, because the system of Rome, the system of Babylon, was built on slavery. In fact, the whole empire worked on slavery. And when you get to understand how this system worked, Did you know that they've now, they know that two out of every three people in that Roman Empire was a slave? Two thirds, a half to two thirds of the empire were slaves. Which means they had no property, no inheritance, no rights, no ability to ever achieve. Now don't think 19th century slavery. It wasn't that. If you're a doctor, if you're a teacher, if you're all those things, you're a slave. Is the people who did nothing and lived for leisure, they were the masters. And into that rotten, fallen system of Babylon that was positioned on slavery, Paul says, this is how you live your life. You love in that system. You're not going to save that system. But you need to love the people under that system. Now, the reason I say this, because even one of our former prime ministers in Australia says, Christianity endorses slavery. You know, there's not one thing in the New Testament that endorses slavery. It was the system of Babylon that endorsed slavery. Never Christianity. But what do you do when you live in Babylon? What do you do when you live in that system? Because slaves were seen as possessions. They weren't people. So if you had an old slave, you threw them out. And they dived on on the scrap heap of life of starvation. If they were sick... You denied them rations if you wanted to be a legalistic Roman. And, you know, there's one whole letter in the New Testament that deals with this issue with a young man called Onesimus and one of the parallel letters to this one in Colossians called Philemon. Now, I won't say much more about that, but let me just say this. Paul says there in chapter 3, 22, 23, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Even when you've got a corrupt master in this corrupt system, love them. Love them. Serve them. It's because you need to serve those in this corrupt system of Babylon. And you love them. Not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart. Fear the Lord. And can I I say this? He says, when you do your work as a slave, you're working for Jesus Christ. That's who you're really working for. And listen to this. (laughs) Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the what? A slave had no inheritance. He had no possessions. He had nothing. And Paul says, just get this right. He goes, uh, you might be living as a slave in this system, this rotten system of Babylon. Don't, don't get ticked off about it. It's you've got an inheritance coming. <laughs> they reckon you're a slave, but you've got an inheritance. And he goes, There, yours, your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. <laughs> you better wake up to who you are. You're a son and a daughter of the kingdom of God. You would not believe the inheritance that's yours. And then slaves, they can never possess anything. And Paul, Paul just says, you're going to possess everything. And, and you know, it's Galatians 3.28. I've already read it. There's neither slave nor free. And under the Christianity, it just came in. And out of those two or three slaves that no one was ever going to change the system of Rome or Babylon, it's these, these people interfaced with that world. And they conquered Babylon by the love of God, heart to heart, life to life. You know, with that there, in 4 1 it says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. What? A master? You giving a command to a master, Paul? Treat your bondservants justly and f-. come on, man. And and not only that, the verse before is, is Paul says this for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality with God. You better believe some masters have got to front up with God and give an account of their misabuse of people's lives. Now, we can apply that with our working place, but this was Babylon, friends. It was Rome that justified slavery. And when it comes to Christianity, despite what some of our prime ministers thought, is, you know, Christianity just comes and it just says, you love the people in this fallen world. And you ever notice where Jesus got his disciples from? Fishermen, tax collectors, doctors. Lydia was a businesswoman. Paul was a tent maker. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. Uh, he never went to the theological colleges. He never went to the roof raft centers of of, of Tiberius, etc. He, he just pulled people off the marketplace. And and there's a real value on work for a believer. It's because it's where you connect with unbelievers. And so Paul says in two Thessalonians three ten and twelve. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command: If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. You're caught up with end times, if you read the context of the letter. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's because, friends, it's how you win your world. So let me me end this way. And Paul says, with slavery, in 1 Corinthians. He tells you what New Testament thinks of slavery, in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me read it to you. Each one should remain in the condition that which he was called. Were you a bondservant or a slave when you were called? Two out of three in Rome were slaves. And do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But it doesn't matter what context you're in, love people in Babylon. And the love of God changes lives one heart at a time. And we're to serve in love that corrupt Babylon system, knowing that those who are servants of God had the greatest inheritance of all that's coming to them. I want to read you a quote from Nathan Wood. And, and when are nearly done so you can all relax and go, he's over. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Let me read this quote from Nathan Wood out of Trinity in the Universe. I love this. This was Christianity's method. Uh, m- sorry, mighty and divine method was slavery. Fallen Babylon, fallen Rome. It did not preach against slavery in attempts to begin with results. It changed the nature and the lives of slaves and their masters and made them brothers in Christ and children of the Father together and possessed of the same spirit. And Christianity, by that divine process, has destroyed slavery. Because the gospel conquers Babylon. And, you live in Babylon and you think you live in an enlightened age, but Babylon is controlling the minds of. The identities, the beliefs, the values, the convictions, the destinies. And another generation is going to look back at this generation and go, how barbaric that generation was with its abortion, its euthanasia, it's no value on the old and the sick. Is because, friends, Babylon thinks always it's enlightened. And it always abuses and mistreats people and, and, and actually puts lives down. And in this gospel, we live under this corrupt system, and this is where we're going uh, here on 9 to 5, is because we're going to Babylon, and we're going to look at in the marketplace, and we're going to walk not just through the historical section of Daniel but we're going to walk right through all those prophetic sections, is those sections that are the deep valleys of the Old Testament that all the in-time prophets get, whoo, here we go, man, we're on a roll. Uh, but friends, you, once you go there and you see how this works, is the love of God conquers Babylon and changes this world to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's going to finish well. Hallelujah. I want to finish this way. It's because, friends, if you're born again in Jesus Christ, if you come to God and I can see I needed to finish five minutes ago. But let me read this Hebrews twelve, twenty two to twenty four. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festival gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word, than the blood of Abel. It's because, friends, you're a part of God's worshipping community in Babylon. Let's stand, let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for your blessing on everyone here. And, Father, that you would touch all our lives. And Jesus, we honor you. We pray for your anointing and for your grace over us all. In your name, Lord Jesus. I, I've done a very probably not a good thing, and I asked Cara, and she's going to come, and I have to make you short tonight, Cara. But um, Cara's just going to say just a few little words just here with us just as we end tonight. And then we're going to close. And uh, if people need prayer, we'll pray for people.